0: Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. 5 Coldest Cases Ever Solved Sometimes it's about new breakthroughs, other times it's about re-examining the clues from another angle. But more often than not, it's just about some unexpected circumstances that help solve even the coldest of cases. Here are the 5 Coldest Cases Ever Solved. Number 5. Wellington Killer Clown On the night of May 26, 1990, in the upscale town of Wellington, Florida, something utterly terrifying occurred. Michael and Marlene Warren were at home, along with Marlene's 21-year-old son Joseph from a previous marriage, when the doorbell rang. They weren't expecting anyone, but Marlene answered the door, and to her surprise, standing in front of her was a person dressed straight out of a horror movie. Wearing an orange wig, White face paint, a red nose, and a big painted smile. It was a clown. They offered a bouquet of flowers and balloons, which the woman apprehensively took. The clown then raised a gun and fired a single bullet straight into Marlene's mouth. Her teenage son heard the shot and rushed towards the entrance to find his mom lying in a pool of her own blood. He saw the clown, who then simply turned around and calmly walked away, getting back into their white Chrysler LeBaron and drove away as if nothing had happened. Marlene was rushed to the hospital, where she eventually died two days later. Less than a week after that, the LeBaron was found abandoned as it had been reported stolen from a car rental agency owned by none other than Michael Warren. Upon inspection, detectives found orange fibers similar to the orange wig worn by the killer clown. Then, during the investigation, it was determined that Mr. Warren had been having an affair with a woman named Sheila Keene. Curiously, a woman who matched her description was seen purchasing a clown costume, flowers, and balloons on the same day of the murder. Police suspected that Michael and Sheila must have been involved in the murder plot. They had other reasons to believe as well, such as the five-figure life insurance payout on the victim the full ownership of the couple's expansive properties, including the car dealership, rental agency, and their Wellington home. Despite all this, though, investigators couldn't convince prosecutors to arrest the two. So, with no other evidence to work with, the case slowed down until it eventually went cold. But 24 years later, in 2014, the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office Cold Case Unit reopened the Marlene Warren murder. The new investigators learned that Keene went on to marry Warren in 2002. But for the police to determine the identity of the killer clown, they would need more than that. Thanks to advanced DNA technology, the female suspect was finally connected to that aforementioned piece of orange hair found in the getaway vehicle. Sheila was then arrested on September 27, 2017 in Abingdon, Virginia and charged with first-degree murder. She is currently awaiting her trial, which has just been recently moved to 2021. Meanwhile, her husband still denies any involvement in the case. Number four, Minnie and Ed Morin. Christmas is supposed to be the season of joy and merriment, but for Ed and Minnie Morin, as well as their family and friends, one particular Christmas became a season of horror and tragedy. On December 19, 1985, Ed and Minnie were reported missing by their family members when they didn't show up for a Christmas party at their home in Chahalice, Washington. The following day, witnesses reported having seen the older couple's car abandoned at a local mall. Upon inspection, police found a large amount of bloodstains splattered inside the vehicle. At the height of the murder investigation, several other witnesses also reported seeing the car at the Sterling Savings and Loan Bank. An examination of their bank records revealed that Ed had withdrawn a very unusual amount of $8,500. Five days later, the couple's bodies were discovered in a wooded area in Chahalas. Investigators determined that the pair had been shot inside the car with a sawed off shotgun. The bodies were then dragged into the woods where a passerby eventually found them. Police speculated that brothers Rick and John Riff were the primary suspects in the grizzly killings. This came after a deputy told the Lewis County Sheriff's Office that he had seen the two driving the victim's car into town. They believed that the brothers abducted Ed and Minnie and forced them to withdraw the large sum of cash before killing them. Despite this theory, though, Police couldn't hone in on any solid evidence that could connect the siblings to the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Detectives said that a lot of witnesses were afraid to come forward out of fear that the Rife brothers may retaliate. So with no other leads to work on, the case was put on the back burner. Meanwhile, the Rife brothers moved to Alaska in 1987. The victim's son, Dennis Hadler, however, continued to seek justice for his parents. He put up a huge bounty for any information that could lead to an arrest. He also hired private investigators to continuously work on solving the case. In an interview, the former Lewis County Commissioner said that though they already had an idea of who the culprits were, it still took them a long time to put all the facts and details together to know for sure they had the proof. Through the incessant efforts of Hadler and the investigation team, the prosecution was finally able to secure an arrest warrant on July 8, 2012 for the brothers. They located Rick, who was then 53, and King Sam in Alaska. He was given a 103-year prison term for the double murder. John, however, had already passed away the week before the arrest was made. Number 3. Cheryl Miller and Pamela Jackson On May 29, 1971, two best friends, Sherry Miller and Pam Jackson, were on their way to a party in the woods in Vermilion, South Dakota. The girls, both 17 years old, were driving a Studebaker owned by Sherry's grandfather, but when all their friends arrived to the gravel pit, they soon realized that Pam and Sherry were nowhere to be found. Then when the girls never showed up back at their homes, Authorities were informed of the now missing teens. An investigation was immediately conducted. Unfortunately, though, at the time, there wasn't even a single shred of evidence that could help lead the police in any sort of direction. Doing their part, their respective family and friends exhausted every means to locate the girls, but progress on the case began to stall until it eventually grinded to a complete halt. And so for more than 30 years, theories and possible scenarios played out in people's minds, but no one knew exactly what happened to the two Vermilion high school juniors. Then in September of 2004, Union County Police received a tip which led detectives to a suspect named David Lichen, a former classmate of the teens. Lichen at this point in time was serving a 227-year prison sentence for raping and murdering a number of other girls. Authorities went to further search the suspect's farm, and there they found heaps of bones, pieces of clothing, newspaper clippings, photographs, and other personal items like bags and purses. None of them, though, belonged to the teens in question, but Lycan's prolific crimes and proximity to the area made him the prime suspect. He was put on trial three years later, but a Union County grand jury soon rejected the charges when state prosecutors discovered that the informant had apparently lied about Lycan's involvement. But then, in 2013, a local resident reported having seen the wheels of an upturned car protruding from the waters of Brule Creek near the town of Elk Point. The car turned out to be a Studebaker, which reminded the witness about the 1971 disappearance case. Authorities were contacted and a retrieval operation was immediately conducted. Several days after, investigators presented to the public photographs of well-preserved clothing and Miller's purse, which contained her identifications, including her driver's license. Through the South Dakota Attorney General, it was confirmed that Cheryl Miller and Pamela Jackson had both died in a car accident. Forensic reports determined the lack of any injury that would have been caused by foul play or inappropriate conduct. No cans or bottles were found inside the car either, which strongly corroborated the previous statements of witnesses saying that the two were sober during their trip. Authorities pointed out that the girls might have been confused of what was then a newly constructed bridge. It's likely that the vehicle went off the gravel road and right into the creek considering that the car was still found in third gear, with the keys in the ignition and the lights still turned on. Number 2. Matthew Chase On the night of June 8, 1988, Matthew Chase told his roommates, Teresa and Steve Dahl, that he needed to go out to deposit his paycheck. The siblings lent their car to the 22-year-old and asked if he could pick up some cat food on his way back home. The bank was located just a couple of blocks away from their Los Angeles, California home, and so it should have only taken the young man 15 or 20 minutes or so to run the errand. The next morning, though, the dolls found out that Matt still hadn't come home, and the car was nowhere in sight. They called the bank and found out that their roommate had indeed used his bank card the night before, several times, in fact. This alerted the two, who then in turn called the LAPD. Records showed that Matt was able to deposit his check and received cash. However, he returned to the same branch 30 minutes later and attempted to withdraw $280, even though it was over the amount limit he could receive per day. He would then go to another ATM, where he once again tried to withdraw amounts exceeding his available balance and this time a surveillance camera captured Matt using the ATM. But the images also revealed something more. Standing behind him was an unidentified man. He was so close that he was literally hovering over Matt's shoulders. Police assume that Matthew was abducted by this mysterious man and was made to do the withdrawal attempts. Five more attempts were made the following day, and at that time the machine confiscated his card Police tried to look for prints on that, but they didn't find any. Matt's parents, the dolls, and the police searched for him, even handing out flyers at a homeless shelter where some of them reported seeing Matt, which gave them a sliver of hope. But then, three weeks after he disappeared, the car that Matt drove that night was found close to where he had last been seen. In it was a blue bandana that didn't belong to either the dolls or Matt, with the letters ESPBSCLS on it. Those stood for Eastside Playboys Chicos Locos. With this evidence, including that of their surveillance photos, the LAPD were able to suspect gang member David Bear Meza in the disappearance of Matt. Three months later, the young man's remains were found in a ravine in Pasadena. He had died from a close-range gunshot to the head before being dumped. As the police began to hone their attention on Meza, they found out that the suspect was shot and killed for undisclosed reasons on June 10, 1988, just two days after Matt's disappearance. With no one else to be held responsible and with the body already discovered, the LAPD finally cleared Matthew's case in 2018, stating Meza was the one who killed him. Number 1. Ariel Castro Ariel Castro was born on July 10, 1960, and at a young age, his family moved to Cleveland, Ohio. He is a former school bus driver who was troubled, and in 1996, he left his entire family behind to go pursue what he always wanted to, twisted fantasies with teenage girls. On August 22, 2002, he offered 20-year-old Michelle Knight a ride. The girl accepted, having personally known him as the father of her friend. He lured the girl to his house on Seymour Avenue, and there he imprisoned her in his basement. Because Knight was already an adult, though, police at the time assumed that she left on her own and thus didn't give priority on her disappearance case. Then on April 21, 2003, Ariel set his eyes on Amanda Berry, a girl who his son had worked with at a Burger King. Like how he did with Knight, he lured the 16-year-old with the offer of a ride home. First, though, he invited her inside his house, where she was then captured. Barry's disappearance roused the public's attention. Aside from the police working closely on the case, her family appeared several times on TV to make an appeal to the perpetrator. Almost exactly one year later, on April 2, 2004, the man found a new victim, Gina de Jesus. The 14-year-old girl was close friends with his youngest daughter, Arlene. Like the first two instances, Castro lured the poor girl to ride with him in his car, invited her into his house, and there held her prisoner. The police were quick to connect the last two cases considering the fact that the last girl had vanished near to where Berry had been taken a year before. And while investigations were made, there were no real leads to follow, and so the cases went cold. Meanwhile, Castro managed to maintain a seemingly normal life outside his Seymour Avenue home. He continued to work as a school bus driver and even played in a band, and of course, he made sure to attend the vigils organized for the missing girls to show his support. For more than ten years, no one had heard from the girls that they were alive and living in what would become known as the House of Horrors. According to the girls, Castro would repeatedly rape them at least five times every single day. He would also beat them if he felt like it, they were made to starve, and if fed, were only given leftover fast food. Throughout the entire duration of their detainment, they were heavily chained around their waist at all times. After some time in the basement, Castro decided to move the girls upstairs and put them in separate bedrooms. In 2007, Berry became pregnant and gave birth to a baby girl, which he later named Jocelyn. On May 6, 2013, salvation finally came for Michelle, Gina, Amanda, and baby Jocelyn, because on that day, Castro forgot to lock the big front door of the house, Although the outer storm door was bolted, Berry let out her screams through a small crack between the doors. The noise alerted two neighbors who came to help. Police were notified, and Castro was arrested that day. In July of 2013, Castro was charged and pleaded guilty to 937 criminal charges, including kidnapping, rape, and murder for the termination of a pregnancy. The court sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus 1,000 years. A month after his sentence was given, the convicted felon was found dead and hanging in his prison cell at the Correction Reception Center in Orion, Ohio. As for the three once captive women and Jocelyn, they are now living their lives freely together with their families so there were the five coldest cases ever solved. It's painful to imagine how the family and friends of these victims suffered the tragic loss of their loved ones, and while justice may be delayed, these stories of cold cases being solved are proof that it can surely come at any time to those responsible. If you enjoyed watching this video, then please remember to subscribe to our channel. We have new videos coming out every single week for you guys to check out. And check out our new podcast called Every Town, which is available wherever you listen to your podcasts, and on this channel as well every Friday. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys soon.